to come to this question of privilege that we hear about a lot these days, I think it's really simple. Every one of us has some power and every one of us lacks power in some areas. You have a moral responsibility, you and me, and I believe everyone listening, has a moral responsibility to ask ourselves, where do I have power? Whether I think I earned it or not. Yes. And we can argue about whether you earned it or not. Where do I have power? And when you know the answer to that, and you can answer it today, mm. and you can answer it over the rest of your life, right? You got it. This is kind of a daily practice, mm. and you need to check in with it and revise it because your power levels will go up and down. They will change. Once you have an answer, then you know the place from which you're supposed to serve the common good. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. I am here with Gareth Higgins. Thank you so much, Gareth, for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for opening up your gorgeous home up here on this mountain to me <laughs> and to my listeners. You make it sound like I'm a James Bond villain. You are a James Bond. I've got You're, a lair. You... I've got a lair. <laughs> uh, I want a gyrocopter, like, you know, that James Bond had in Goldfinger, where like a little tiny personal helicopter. <laughs> it's just basically an armchair yes. with plastic blades that takes you places. I think that would make you even more fabulous than you already are. <laughs> Before we get started, just share some of your bio with us, sure. some of who you are and what you've done and some of your yeah. story. Well, I was born just outside Belfast in what some people call Northern Ireland and other people call the North of Ireland. And I grew up there and I've been in the US for the last 10 years, but I lived the first 33 years of my life in and around Belfast. And I'm a writer and a storyteller. I I lead retreats and start festivals. And the purpose of all of this is to help make the world a better place through nurturing communities that learn and share a better story. Because I think we're all telling stories. And out of those stories, we create our lives. But most of us are unconscious of those stories. Mm. Most of those stories, or many of those stories, are not are not doing us any good. And that comes back to where I'm from, a, a, a place where there was a long-standing conflict between people over uh, power mm. uh, who was in charge who had a stake in the society and that had its root in the stories we were telling each other about ourselves mm. that's why I care about this it's what I love to talk about mm. so today we're going to be talking about story and the stories we tell and, and how these stories shape our communities and the way we interact with the world. And there are a lot of really toxic stories out there right now. One of the questions that I get all the time for the show and for the blog that I write is how do we as people oriented towards love and justice and empathy maintain healthy boundaries and vitality and health in a world that seems overrun with a siege mentality mm -hmm. and tribalism mm -hmm. and fundamentalism. Sure. And how do we shape the stories that we tell to create greater health for ourselves and for the community? Well, there's at least two levels to the, re to the response I want to give to that question. The first is, how are we organizing our lives? Mm. And you could simplify that down to, are you organizing your life around your smartphone? Right. Or is your smartphone organizing itself around you? <laughs> right. For smartphone, you could substitute any form of engagement with electronic media. Mm. It's, it's not a new idea and it's a simple idea, but it's, it's so profound and we might miss it. And that is, are we becoming conscious of how we use these tools as tools or are we letting them use us? Have we surrendered our wills? To these mm. tools so questions like is it healthy to take your phone to bed with you yeah right is it or to the bathroom or to the bathroom yeah is it healthy to 
check your phone first thing in the morning when you when you wake up when your brain is perhaps not ready for conversation of any kind i mean i struggle to even have a conversation with my partner about what am i going to do what what are you doing what's what's what what's on the agenda for today you know if i have that conversation before i've kind of got up and stretched a little bit had a shower like it's hard just for me to process that question never mind a news alert being the first thing i see and part of that is because the news media and i used to work for the bbc you know a very distinguished honorable media organization but even within the bbc if it bleeds it leads um that that we don't report the news that isn't spectacular or that we don't most easily see as spectacular so all the people who weren't murdered yesterday that's not a news story or as far as the official media are concerned so our news alerts tend to be awful things frightening things because that's what keeps us reading so that one level of how you know how are we engaging with the tools that provide information propaganda wisdom and deception right there's i mean a, a smartphone is a morally neutral device as far as i'm concerned it's what you do with it that matters but the active verb in that sentence is the most important thing what you do with it rather than what it does with you I try to think about my engagement with electronic media the same way I used to think about letters. You know, if mail came and I was in my office, there was a particular time of day that I would deal with correspondence or maybe a particular day of the week that I would deal with correspondence. And if I was working on three or four projects at any given time, there was like Tuesday afternoon, I would do this project. Thursday morning, I would do this other project. One of the things I don't think our culture has evolved quickly enough to contend with is we get everything at once. Now, mm -hmm. you know, we mm -hmm. get uh, funny cat videos and atrocity videos. Yeah. And we get happy re-engagements with long lost friends and love letters and nagging reminders from people and painful stuff and there's a an election over here and there's a war over here and there's a famine over here and it just becomes overwhelming to the psyche so the first level is are we becoming conscious of how we use these tools i'm so glad you bring that up because i recently read a book called the shallows by nicholas carr yeah. and it's over there it's just behind you oh fabulous <laughs> oh it's a great book and you know i it was one of the better books that i read last year and yeah. it really made me think about what he calls intellectual technologies intellectual technology being these devices and inventions that shape not just how we communicate, but ultimately how we think and see the world. And so the clock was an intellectual technology. Gutenberg's press was an intellectual technology, and it ultimately shapes our brain, our neural connections. And so the smartphone is really this invention that we have to be mindful of because new technologies always shape our subconscious stories. They are intellectual technologies that shape how we see the world. And if we aren't mindful of that, if we don't very carefully consider that, then then we're helpless. We won't be aware of the stories that are shaping our lives through these technologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I'll, I'm going to I'll revisit in a, in a bit what I think we can do with these technologies in order to enhance the better story. But the second level at which I, I think looking after ourselves and well, maintaining well-being in the midst of this bombardment is what are we doing with our close circle of community? Mm, absolutely. Um, we often talk, or I've often heard people say that what you need to survive as a human is food, water, air, and shelter. We rarely define what we mean by shelter. We, we, we tend to think it's four walls and a roof, or if you live in certain cultures, it's one round wall and a roof, right. or there might yeah, not yeah. even be a roof. And that's important, but I extend the definition of shelter in three ways. I think that we need the shelter of a sense of purpose that's individually ours to tend to, ours to look after. Like your purpose is kind of like a vegetable garden that you have responsibility for and mm. you get to tend. You're supposed to till the soil, plant the seeds, cut away the weeds, treat with generosity the plants as they grow, and then use them after they are harvested. So a sense of purpose for, for you, and you, you have a unique purpose in the world. I have a unique purpose in the world. I can't live your purpose. You can't live mine. And when I say purpose, I mean something far deeper than ambition or career. Both of those things can be part of the purpose. I'm talking about what is your gift for the common good? What is your gift that you can serve the betterment of the world? 
I like to think of that as like, what are my funeral values? <laughs> what are people going to say? What about you know? You? Like, what do you want people to say about or, you? When yeah, you're gone, like or? what? What do I want people to say about mm -hmm. me? And what do I want my legacy to yes. be? Or what do I want to be on my tombstone? Do I want on my tombstone to be he he spent lots of time on Facebook? Sure. He he fought lots of trolls on Facebook. Or do I want it to be something more than that? I heard a or read a beautiful example of this this morning. We're recording this interview the day after John Mahoney, who played Frazier's dad. Mm. Uh, in the sitcom died and John Cusack tweeted of John Mahoney every time you spent time with John Mahoney you came away feeling better mm. right that's a legacy absolutely and that's and I know someone who spent a little bit of time with John Mahoney and my understanding from her interaction with him and in an interview she published with him is he knew that that was his purpose and he consciously put his mind toward serving other people's need to be elevated, to be lifted, to be lifted out of wherever they were in that moment, whatever darkness was in enveloping them or threatening to envelop them. So that's the, fir the first of three elements of shelter is a sense of purpose. The second is mentoring relationships, by which I mean each of us need to be connected and will benefit from being connected to one or two or lots of people who are a few steps down the road beyond where we are, who can help us contain our panic when things go wrong yes or look like they're going wrong can help us discern what that sense of purpose is that i was just talking about can support us with resources often people who are older have more time they may have more money they may have a, a spare bed or a couch that you can come and sleep on when you need a shoulder to cry on or you just need some space most of all what they have is experience Mm. And I'm sure you've seen the research into the regrets that elderly people have or the what I would have done differently if I'd known. Mm. And that's the answer to those questions is all the things that mentors can share with people who are further behind on the road. And then there's the task of those of us uh, who are being mentored. We're supposed to mentor people coming behind us as well. Yes. And the third element of shelter is what I call a circle of mutual support. Mm. And I think this is any number between three and eight people. If it's if it's just two people, that's a friendship. Yes, <laughs> three people is a, can create a circle. Eight people is, in my experience, kind of the maximum that can do this really meaningfully together. Once you bring more than eight people in, you start to dilute the relationships. And of course, you can have as many friends as you want to, but I'm talking about a primary conscious circle of support and the qualifications for membership in this circle are really simple you just have to be committed to your own journey of emotional spiritual and psychic maturity mm. it doesn't mean that you're an expert or a guru god forbid it doesn't mean that you're existing on a spiritually elevated plane or that you're a professional mystic it just means you've made a conscious decision to open yourself to the leading of what i call the leading of love toward becoming more fully human Hmm. And often that means you're someone who's really in touch with your missteps. Yes. You're really in touch with your sense of regret, your sense of consciousness about where you've impacted people in a way that has perhaps caused pain. And you're finding a way to move beyond toxic shame into owning responsibility for all of your story, the light and the shadow, the beautiful parts and the ugly parts. So I actually, I don't trust people who aren't willing to share their mistakes. Oh, absolutely. Um, Me neither. <laughs> and, or I trust people. Let's put it this way. I trust people more and trust can deepen when we share the shadow as well as the light. One of the challenges here is most people don't have a deep circle of friends at all. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think that we are living in a culture in crisis in, in regards to connection, that, that we are in a crisis of community, just kind of as a culture in America and in the Western world in general? Depends on how young you are. Okay. Um, my sense is that one of the most exciting... I just turned 43. I feel like I'm about 23. Um, <laughs> sometimes I feel like I'm 73. And, uh -huh. you know, I, I've always kind of... I've always had friends who are much older. I have younger friends. What I notice... This is going to sound like, like a crotchety old man. What I notice about the younger generation is there is more community. There is certainly less shaming going on in communities of what have come to be called the millennial hmm. generation that shaming of people's painful stories hmm. 
It's so the, interesting that you say that because I've heard so much of the exact opposite. Well, that, yeah. this is about, you know, from tribe to tribe, oh, there's a lot sure. of shaming. Sure. Um, but within the tribe, like it seems to me it's a lot easier for someone under 30 to to acknowledge that they're struggling with something in their life than it is for someone in my generation or certainly people in my parents' generation. Um, again, this is a generalization, a, a simplification that may have some truth to it or may not. It's up to mm. you and, and you listeners to decide. My sense of my parents' generation was that they were more concerned about reputation than they were about acknowledging their needs. That if you acknowledged that you had a need or you were struggling or you, you didn't know what to do about something in your life, um, that there was a shame mechanism attached to that, that it was more humiliating to admit you had a problem hmm. than it was to go through the problem itself. So I think our parents' generation has, has struggled with reputation hmm. and that reputation is based on a false self that, you know, upstanding and, you know, never always has their words perfect, you know, never runs into financial trouble, never runs into relational trouble, never runs into, you know, quote unquote, embarrassing situations. Mm. So reputation seemed to be the primary concern. I think my generation's primary, and when I say primary concern, I'm talking about the shadow concern. I'm talking about the part of human nature that is repressed, uh, hidden, denied. And if it isn't brought into the light, it can cause a lot of damage. Yes. So I'm not saying, when I say our parents' generation were primarily concerned with reputation, I mean the shadow side like, right. of the boomer generation is an addiction to a false self projecting to the world because the worst thing you can do is let people know what you're really like or what you're really struggling with. Mm. Now, there's, there are what shadow work people call the golden side. There's loads of golden things about my parents' generation. That's not what I'm sure talking about right now the shadow side of my generation is a concern with money and a concern with making it there's a continuum of what you might just call abject selfishness around i want to make as much money as i can keep as much of it for myself and i'm driven to have that kind of temporal power and on the other end of the continuum there's the i can't afford to pay my rent this month and i'm suffocating because of that, because where I, I see my generation as a sort of a transitional generation, they say that my generation is the first in history that are likely to not make as much money as their parents generation right. did the first to experience what they call reverse social mobility mm. and that is certainly true of the generation coming behind the millennial generation absolutely yeah um no <laughs> whether, i will probably never retire <laughs> well well or or when we when we get to what's good about the millennial generation maybe your generation will form new economic communities Yes. Where your private income is no longer the measure of who you are in terms of status in the world, nor does it describe the per the parameters of what you can actually do with your life. Because the it seems to me the younger you get, the more likely you are to share things that in the past, certainly in the post-industrial era, we didn't share mm. anymore. We bought private houses yeah. where we put nuclear families inside them and no in, in, in human history nobody had ever done that before yeah that's there'd true. always been extended families you'd have an uncle or an aunt or a friend or a medicine man living living in the house with you and, and you know that's that's interesting because that is something that i've noticed about my generation because i live in a community house you know it, it's me and my boyfriend yeah then across the hallway it's a, another married couple mm -hmm. and uh, we have been living together, the four of us, for years now. And, and we've kind of created this little family and we have our cats and we have our community and we share everything. We share food, we share utilities, we share books and shows and Netflix. And, and you save money. And we save so and, much money. And so that means t there's two obvious outcomes of that. One is you can either do other things with the money that yes. you have or... You don't need to make as much money. Exactly. And um, I, I make zero money. Right. There you go. And I, <laughs> I and, make so and, little. And, and, and you're not sitting there with this deep aspiration <clears throat> that one day we'll move out of this house and buy one for ourselves and never have anybody else live with us. Yeah. yeah as yeah. if like that's the pinnacle of what, what life's supposed to be about. So when I, when I, to go back to this thing of, an, of a close circle, mm. these things seem to manifest more organically among younger people, I see. my generation sort of needs to work at it a bit more. Our parents' generation, for most, the most part, it doesn't even enter in 
yeah. to the frame of reference. Most people don't have a close circle at all, or if they do, it's what I would call a sort of a neutral passive circle, which would be people who like to play golf together, for instance. Nothing against people who play golf, but uh, if all they have in common is that they play golf, they're not relating at a particular deep emotional level. Then there's circles of kind of mutual interest, like six psychiatrists or six movie fans who hang out together. That's great. It's not the same thing as a, as a deep, intimate circle of mutual support. And then you have the most, let's say, unfortunate variation, which is when you have people who have the same wound or the same pain yes. or the same angst who come together in a circle. And I call that a circle of self-perpetuating victimhood. Absolutely. Uh, because unless there is an, an elder or a mentor figure in there, someone who can intervene and say, we're going to create a container for your pain and we're going to help you heal and move beyond it. Yes. This is why the 12-step movement is a work of genius. Oh, I love the 12 uh, steps. Because it's an intervention that, if followed, does not let people stay in their victimhood while also being tremendously tender, gracious, and generous toward the wound. What I think people need is a circle in which there's between three and eight people, each of them committed to their own journey of maturity and each of them with enough in common to actually want to enjoy being together and enough differences that we're not all just repeating what everybody else is saying. We're not all living out of the same wound. So the circle that I have been meeting in has, there's, there's, there's people, you know, 10, 15, maybe t 10 years younger than me in it. There's people 30 years older than me. There's a songwriter, a therapist, me as a writer and a storyteller, there's a college chaplain, there's an acupuncturist, there's a, a guy who works in IT and kind of technological support. And that's really healthy. Absolutely. That's really healthy. And what we do is really simple. We meet together, we have a meal, and then we ask four questions. And I think these questions could be helpful to anybody who wants to wake up from the fog or the bombardment of propaganda information wisdom and deceit and start to separate out the wisdom from everything else mm. and these four questions are what's bringing you life at the moment the second question is what's bringing you death at the moment or what's challenging you or draining you at the moment right uh, the third question is how do you feel your purpose for the common good is showing up in your life mm. have you had an, a good way of asking it is since we last met have you had an opportunity to live your purpose for the common good? And what did you do with that opportunity? Mm. You know, did you fully lean into it? Did you run away from it? Did mm. you start and then it didn't go well? This is not about shaming anybody. It's about learning to do it better next time. Mm. And then the fourth question, and this is really, I think this is a really radical question to ask in a world where people still do think that your career is the primary definition of who you are and that your bank balance is a, a definition of success, mm. you know, or worse, that it's a definition of moral character, you know, or your value in, in the world. The fourth question is, uh, having heard what we've heard, as everyone has gone around and answered those three questions, is there anybody here who wants to offer something to somebody else? Mm. Or is there anybody here who wants to ask for something from somebody else or from the circle? And the reason that that question is so dangerous in a good way is... A poet once wrote that, you know, most of us live lives of quiet desperation. Yes. And I think that's only true to the degree that you are unconsciously giving yourself over to the desperation narrative. Mm. If you're in a circle and you can literally say, I can't pay my rent at the moment, could this circle share that burden with me? And I mean, could this circle pay my rent for the next three months? or help me find ways to do that so I can just get some breathing space? Mm. And can we do it in a way that isn't gonna victimize me or put us create a hierarchy where I feel embarrassed? I don't have any money right now, but I have other gifts that I can share. Or I'm experiencing a grief regarding a loved one that I can't let go of, and I don't know what to do with it. Could this circle help me face that? Mm and heal from that. Or just as, as someone said to me once at, at probably the lowest point in my life, I don't know how to advise you, but I will come over to your house and sit in the ashes with you. Mm. Or less grave things like, I need a babysitter on right. Thursday night. 
and I can't afford one. I mean, this is this is a serious issue when it comes to young parents. So many young parents. That oh I my know goodness! Yes, it is. Can't go out at night and get some time to just rest because we don't live near our near grandparents anymore. Yes, you know, we used to. There used to always be grandparents and a village around us that could could do that. Parents were never supposed to be the only caregivers, and there's that kind of children. this island that's unto right. themselves. That's yeah. right, and. And then, you know, it costs 30 to 60 bucks to have a babysitter. How about if we were all in in a circle of three to eight people? Part of the gift of that circle, say there's a couple of young parents in the circle and there's six other people there. You could quite easily set up a system where each of those six other people can say, I'll babysit for you once a week. Hmm. And so once every six weeks, I would have, the, I would receive the gift of being in service to young parents giving them a night off mm. like there's no cost in that to yeah. anybody and it's better for the world mm. if we do it i think all it takes is a simple act of consciousness to choose to give yourself to the wisdom that's already out there in mm. the world and to take it back to the the first level of the individual relationship with your smartphone and your consumption of media that's the kind of thing we can talk about in these circles mm. and we can invite each other and and into better practices we can we can give each other tips on hey here's how i do it this is what works for me or we can just say like oh i had another week of just surrendering my mind to the hive yes and i just need to name that out loud breathe it out and remind myself of what it is i'm trying to do just to recap some i see you laying something out on the table that is just really extraordinary first to be mindful of the stories that we are receiving through intellectual technologies uh and to be mindful of how those are shaping our world and that is social media that is our smartphones and then second to be aware of shelter and what that shelter is for us. And that is mentors and being mentors and then this close circle of community. What strikes me about this is I see this as an alternative to what siege culture and fearful culture offers. You know, I think I think what the alt-right offers a lot of young men is community and purpose is community and purpose. Yeah. And this is offering th this kind of radical vulnerability and mindfulness and presence to one another within a small circle uh this is creating a a light version a not a, not a light as in l-i-t-e sure. but golden version but golden version yeah. yes thank you <clears throat> an alternative to these fearful and fundamentalist and siege cultures sure. and i think that's incredibly radical sure and i think you know siege cultures exist on the left as well absolutely and there is a mirroring that goes on and you know we can make judgments about the impact left and right of which which is better and worse my view on ideology is that it's usually damaging the primary assessment criterion for an ideology Mm. Is it making the world better? Yes. Right? The reason I talk about a purpose for the common good is I don't care what whether you're red or blue. Mm. I'm, st I, I'm still Irish. I can't, is it red or blue? It's red or blue, isn't it? It's red That's or blue. Okay, I don't care if you're red, <laughs> blue, or what, what, you know, whatever. Whatever your sort of traditional political ideology yeah. happens to be, there's good in many systems. Mm. many different ways of looking at the world the question is do you, does your practice serve the common good david dark would call that what is your witness what is say more uh okay so in, and it's lovely to have dave's name mentioned yes oh uh, uh, you know david dark was my second episode for this show and i really want to bring him back on because he's just such a wise wise man you know, I, I interviewed him about his most recent book, uh, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. Yeah. And, and in that book, he says we all have a witness. We all have a conscious or unconscious witness, which is at the end of the day, our religion. Our mm. religion is do we line up in the queue for the new iPhone? That, yeah. is, that is our witness. How do we treat the stranger? How do we treat the cashier? How do we treat our spouse? What do we read? What do we watch? What gets our attention? And at the end of the day, what gets our attention is our religion and our witness. Yeah. And that is very often misaligned with yeah. what we say our religion is. And you know, that has been an incredibly helpful concept for me, thinking about 
having to sit down and be really, really honest with mm-hmm. myself. And it's kind of not shaming, but sometimes humiliating mm-hmm. to sit down and really think seriously about what my witness actually is. Mm-hmm. I find that I am generally a more selfish person than I want to admit. Mm-hmm. I find that I'm generally more self-indulgent and more shallow mm-hmm. than I want to admit. And I realize if I'm not conscious of that, then that will grow and grow and consume and become my witness. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the big insights that I've taken from David mm-hmm. Dark. Yeah, I think one aspect of what we pay attention to is the kind of narrative that we perceive the world through. And here's, here's I'll give you one small example, then I want to I'll say something about kind of overarching narratives that yes. uh, we're born into. The Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker is one of, one of my intellectual heroes. I was about to bring him up. Yeah. I'm so glad you're bringing and him up. One of the things I really like is when I find a thinker who I disagree with, but who has so many deeply compelling things that they say in other areas that yes. I, I can't avoid listening. One of, the, one of the ideological problems in our current moment is that someone can be really profoundly right about seven things and be really really, really badly wrong about two things. I love Steven Pinker uh, in every area except his understanding of spirituality and religion. Uh, I, 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 just, I, agree. I just I just don't think that he's grappled with religion in as meaningful a way as I would like him to. I but agree. So, so many of the other things he says are just extraordinarily helpful. And his most recent major contribution to knowledge is the view that we may actually be living in the most peaceful time in human history, that violence may have reduced so significantly over time that if you stepped back and had a longer term view, you'd be so grateful to be alive today, Mm. unless you are one of the people who's directly suffering from violence or the threat of violence. Mm. And part of what some people use or can use to ignore Steven Pinker's work is we can always find an example of something awful that's happening in the world and say, well, what about? Pinker would say the only morally credible method of measuring the value of a life is to treat all lives as equal. Mm, yes. And so my life is worth no more and no less than a Syrian person's life mm. is worth. And clearly a person in Syria right now or a Syrian refugee or a Syrian immigrant or a Syrian person who now has dual citizenship in the United States, all of those lives are under more stress and the closer you get to actually being in Syria under more actual threat than mine. Those lives deserve more attention than mine right now, more protection, more empathy than mine. But if my life is lost or if one of those lives are lost, those are equal in value. And... Pinker said recently in a conversation with Bill Gates that the New York Times published that you could say that I think it's 200 years ago, 90% of the global population lived in extreme poverty. Yes. Today, it's about 10% that's extraordinary. of the global population yeah. that lives in extreme poverty. That's amazing. So that's one way of saying it. Another way of saying is there are 700 million people alive today who are living in extreme poverty. Both ways of saying it are true. One feels worse than the other. One feels better than the other. Right. The point is, we need to be able to say it both ways at the same time. Mm. So to say, this is astonishing. There's been an, 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 like an, an almost unfathomable... That's the wrong word, not unfathomable. Unprecedented. It's unprecedented. I'm trying to, talk, I'm trying to say that you can't even grasp... The human mind, incomprehensible. incomprehensible. Yes. No, that's the wrong word too, because we can, the part of the problem is, I I don't want to use the word miraculous, because miraculous implies nobody actually did something to make it happen, and that we can't learn from it, and to call it incomprehensible means that we can't understand it. We can't conceive of it in our minds, put it that way, of just how extraordinary this change was. And we, at the time, we couldn't imagine it, but now we can, looking back. Good. That's a good way of putting it. Sure. And... Clearly, we can look back on those last 200 years and ask ourselves, what were the things that happened, the steps that were taken that led to this massive decrease in uh, extreme global poverty? And can we then learn from those steps and implement those steps as policies or, or practices in our own individual lives and in our communities? Or you can 
pronounce yourself horrified at the 700 million people still in extreme global poverty and allow that horror and empathy to fuel action to help those people. Mm. The problem is when we respond to good news by coming up with an example of where that good news isn't true for somebody else. Mm. And the other problem is when we don't acknowledge that what allows me to be able to talk like this with you in a nice house in North Carolina using this technology is the fact that neither of us is part of the 700 million people currently living in extreme right. poverty. Right. So to come to this question of privilege that we hear about a lot these days, I think it's really simple. Every one of us has some power and every one of us lacks power in some areas. You have a moral responsibility, you and me, and I believe everyone listening, has a moral responsibility to ask ourselves, where do I have power? Whether I think I earned it or not. Yes. And we can argue about whether you earned it or not. Where do I have power? And when you know the answer to that, and you can answer it today, mm. and you can answer it over the rest of your life, right? You got it. This is kind of a daily practice, mm. and you need to check in with it and revise it because your power levels will go up and down. They will change. Once you have an answer, then you know the place from which you're supposed to serve the common good. Absolutely. At the same time, you ask, where do I lack power? Mm. When you know the answer to that question, then you know the place from which you need to find safe people from whom to ask for help. Absolutely. You know, and I don't care how wealthy you are, you lack some power. It might be, it might be you have some illness, you mm. know, that's debilitating you physically. It might be that you have some trauma in your life it might be that you uh how you struggle with communication or you've had a series of relationships that didn't work mm. you know it could be any of those things those are the places from which you can ask for help clearly there are some people who have vastly more power than others they get to serve exactly they get to serve from that place it's they the get first to serve the common good the from first that shall place. be last the, and yeah and each one the beautiful thing is each one of us has a place where we're first and each one of us has a place where we're last. Yes. You know, each one of us is experiencing. And again, this is absolutely not to say that everyone's in the same boat. There are people right now who are more targeted. Yes. There are people right now who are in more danger, under, under more threat. And the more power you have, the more responsibility you have to serve people who lack power. It's not rocket science. Yeah. It all, And it isn't punishment. And it's not... Like, it's not dogma mm -hmm. either. It's actually what gives you life. You know, one of the things that I say all the time on the podcast is, you know, to the straight people listening, uh, to the straight allies, that the gay community, the LGBT community in general, we need people in privilege to help us, mm -hmm. to use that, that voice, to use their privileged voice mm -hmm. to help us. And that doesn't mean look down on us. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean explain to us what our life should be or shouldn't oh, be. Sure. It's none of that, but simply to be advocates for our humanity. Sure. And, and you know, I, I always tell people if you support gay people and, and the LGBT community in general to always speak up and to be advocates for our humanity because we can't do it without you. And then the same goes for us who have white privilege. When I say it's not rocket science, all I mean is you don't have to think very hard to figure out where you have power that other people don't. Absolutely. And, and if you want to serve, it's really good to ask the people who you want to serve, how can I help you? Mm. you know, or what do you need, actually? Because people may not need or feel that they need help. They may feel that they just need someone to listen. Mm. to hear their story. I, th I, I want to know, I think there was a thread that we didn't tie up, but I can't remember what it was. And maybe, maybe... It's fine. Maybe not. Okay. Don't worry about it. Oh, I wanted to talk about uh, organizing narratives. That would be great. Stories. That would be great. So something I've found really life-giving lately has been this thing that we call the seventh story. It's something that my friend and colleague Brian McLaren and I have been working on together. And it's the idea that one way of looking at the world and there's lots of different ways of looking at the world. This doesn't contradict them. One way is to imagine that we are all born into a series of stories or narratives that the culture around us takes for granted. We think there are six of these default 
stories. We call them the default oppositional stories because they cause us to separate from each other. The first we, we would call the domination story. And that's, that's the idea that you bring peace and security by dominating others. I'm mm. going to rule over you. The Roman Empire, the Darth Vader Empire, <laughs> yeah. the, the petty empires that each of us has probably suffered in or maybe been responsible for perpetuating, I think particularly in the workplace. That's the domination narrative. The second narrative is what we call the revolution narrative. And I don't want people to be misled because I know the word revolution is often used in positive contexts. We talk about a civil rights revolution or a human rights revolution. And the reason, and of course, we believe in the civil rights revolution and the human rights revolution. I don't think it's a helpful word for two reasons. First of all, it's literally inaccurate when it is used to describe to a major change mm. uh, in society. Because if you think about what a revolution actually is in geometric terms, mm. it, uh, uh, for the listeners, I'm, I'm drawing a circle with my finger at the moment. Yes. A revolution begins at one point, goes on a circle and ends up back in exactly the same point. Huh. Right? Would you describe That's, it rather as an awakening, as a I, renaissance? I, I think awakening is a, a good word. The revolutions that we're talking about are the ones that replace one form of domination with another. Yes. Even if it's a slightly better form of domination. From one ghetto to another. I'm going to over, you know, you're you're dominating me, so I'm going to overthrow you and then I'm going to rule over you. Right. Um the third story is what we call the purification story. That's the one that says, I don't like those people over there. My problems are their fault. Mm. They're to blame. I don't like the way they look or what they believe or what or how they are in the world. Mm. And so uh, we're going to get rid of them mm. uh, either by building a wall around ourselves or by exterminating or excluding yes. these people. And this is you know manifested in genocide, but there's also a kind of a character assassination of groups or a character or a large scale emotional genocide where yes. we just write other people off. Mm. Um, the fourth narrative is the isolation narrative, which is I want to get away from all this. So I'm going to go and find a promised land or go out into the wilderness. And we're going to build a new utopian community there. And I'm going to bring people with me, but only the people who are pure like I am. Right. But then of course, when you look at the history of promised lands, when people get there, it falls apart. One of the first things they do is they start dominating each other and having revolutions and having purification contests. It becomes animal farm. It's exactly yeah. animal farm. Yeah. Um, some animals are more equal than yeah, others. Yeah. yeah. And the, the fifth uh, narrative is the victimization narrative. Mm. You or your group caused me or my group to suffer. Mm. My suffering is the most important aspect of my identity. Mm. I will never, ever reconcile with you and I'm going to carry my wound as if it's the only thing that matters and I think maybe all of us have some part of ourselves where we feel that way absolutely and this is why things like close circles of support good therapy good spiritual religious or values based uh, communities they don't have to be religious can help us not leave it behind mm. but to mourn the wound and let the wound become a scar mm. rather than an open sore and integrate it as a part of me, but it's not all of me. Yes. And then the sixth narrative is what we call the accumulation narrative. I'm going to bring peace and security through having more stuff, whether it's a bigger sofa, bigger house, or why don't let's invade a country and we'll, and we'll, we'll make the country part of our uh, territory as well. These six stories, domination, revolution, purification, isolation, victimization, accumulation, are among the guiding stories of Western culture. I was born into these stories. Some of these stories I was told consciously. Accumulation, definitely. Mm. You know, definitely in, in school and in the culture around us, we were encouraged to get, as, get the kind of job that would give us as much stuff as we could get. Yeah. Victimization was a big story in the north of Ireland and in Northern Ireland because there was so much immediate uh, recent suffering. And Some in the it. LGBT community. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and it doesn't help us heal and become resilient, glorious, gifted human beings who are living from our gift. Hmm. We got to mourn the wound. For, well, first of all, the victimization that happens to people in the LGBT community. It's real. Well, it is real. The, yeah. So the first step is to stop it. 
Right. right. That's, that's exactly. the first step. Is it's to, to stop the victimization. stop the victimization. Make sure that people are no longer and, abused. And, yeah. and, and because that's a long-term task, mm. another way of putting the maybe the first step, the first micro step of that macro step is to protect people from harm or yes. extract them from the situation where they are being actively harmed. Yeah, so the first step is to, is to take steps to, to prevent further victimization, to protect people who are being victimized, to help those of us who've been wounded to heal, mm. to restrain the people who are doing the harm, Yes. to invite some accountability. And the truth is, there are some people out there who want to make amends for the, the prejudice that they've expressed Absolutely. to the LGBT community because they've evolved. Yes. And, and there are some people... Who still think they're doing the right thing by uh, perpetuating shame? Maybe the best we can do, uh, where those folk are concerned, is to both ignore them and to create resilient communities in which safety and love and flourishing can happen uh, for the LGBT community, allowing for the truth that there are people who just don't get it yet. Yes. And that doesn't mean we can't back it up with legislation and civil rights uh, policies and so on and so forth. Anyway, these stories, I was born into these stories. I wasn't conscious of them. And then Brian McLaren and I were talking one day and he started talking to me about this idea he'd had that each of these stories is an attempt at bringing peace and security and they have three or four things in common. The first is that they don't work. That should be the, the reason we don't live by these stories anymore. But if you don't notice that you're living by the story, then you don't notice that it doesn't work. And lots of us keep doing things that don't work and expecting a different outcome uh, as they, you know, people call that the definition of insanity. The second thing is they're all based on separation. Mm. Separation of humans from each other, separations of humans from the earth and the ecosystem, and separations, uh, separation of humans from the, what you might call the divine or God or the, 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 the bigger reality of love in the world. The third thing that they have in common is that they are attempts to avoid suffering which actually create more suffering. Yeah. in the world even if they're just displacing the suffering onto uh, other people yeah um, and the fourth thing is that in each of these stories human beings are the protagonist of the world mm. we're the most important parts of the world's story now there is a seventh story and the seventh story uh, has emerged and evolved over time in some spiritual traditions some other narrative traditions and I have the I live with the hypothesis that the seventh story is not only true but it works. Mm. And the seventh story could be called the reconciliation story. That's not based on avoiding suffering, but recognizing that in every life suffering will come. The question is, what will you do with it when it comes mm. to you? And that if you voluntarily choose to participate in service to the common good, then you will suffer. Mm-hmm. Some suffering will come. But if you have a close circle of mutual support, you can help manage your suffering and you don't have to suffer alone. Yes. But in the reconciliation story, we're not moving towards separation. We're moving toward a union. Humans with each other, humans with the earth, and humans with love. Mm-hmm. And most important of all, the biggest category difference between the seventh story and the previous six is that in the story, and it is just a story, in the same way that the story of the tortoise and the hare is a story that's not a historically true story. There never was a race between a real tortoise and a real hare. Right. But it illustrates a deeper truth. Yes. You know, and the story of Field of Dreams is obviously not a historically uh, factual story, but it's a story about archetypal relationships between fathers and sons. Mm. In the seventh story, human beings are not the protagonist. Protagonist of the seventh story is love itself. Mm. And you have a role in this story, and I have a role in this story. Whereas in the previous six stories, it's like you're a one person show on an off, off, off Broadway stage, and nobody's in the audience, and nobody cares. And the most you can hope for is that you'll die alone, surrounded by your stuff. Right. But in the seventh story, you're actually a cast member in the largest Broadway show ever produced. Mm. There are seven billion other cast members right now. And if you've ever done theater, 
and I, I, I'm going to make an educated guess that you probably have. I, just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> um, you know that there's many ways to put on a show together, but killing other members of the cast is probably not the best way to create a successful show. Mm. And that's one of the many reasons why I think killing people is a bad idea. Right. Um, uh, never mind the suffering it causes to them. Of course, that's important. It also impacts our lives. It makes the show less fun. Yes. It makes the show less functional. Too. Yes. Um, the seventh story puts the fun back into functional uh, <laughs> by saying, we're on the biggest stage there's ever been. You have uh, your lines. I have my lines. I can't say your lines. You can't say mine. But in order for us to be able to do the dance of life together, I sort of need to know a few of your lines. You sort of need to know a few of my lines. And every one of us gets one big show-stopping number where we stand in the center of the stage and the spotlight is on us and everybody else in the cast is standing behind us amplifying what we're doing. Mm. And what we're doing is we are saying, I'm participating in the story of the evolution of love. Mm. And one of the first principles of love is truth. There's a reason why a great spiritual teacher, perhaps the greatest said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. To go back to that statistic about 90% of the global population used to live in extreme poverty 200 years ago, and now it's 10%. That's, according to the statistics, a truthful statement. But there's two ways to say it. Both of them are true. Each of them should liberate us. Yes. And the truth within it should both increase our gratitude for the moment in which we live, if we are not one of the 700 million people. Although I can imagine there being people who are in extreme global poverty who do feel some degree of comfort that the tide is going the right direction mm -hmm. and there are people who are so selfless we all have met people who are so selfless that no matter what they're suffering they can still show gratitude for other people's pleasure for other for the good things that are happening in other people's lives you know people are carrying just the deepest burdens and yet they still have time to be happy for you but of course it doesn't end there it comes back to Part of this truth is me figuring out what to do with my power. Mm. And the purpose of my power in the world is to participate in the evolution of the story of love. And this is much more exciting to me than, I don't know, being a best-selling author, which would be a nice thing mm -hmm. at one level. But that's not the sum total of a meaningful life. Absolutely. You know, it's, did I participate in an ever-increasing way in the story of the evolution of love. Mm. And not so I can pat myself on the back or get a medal, but because the genius of this, the genius of the way the, the human universe works is that it is better to give than to receive. Not because it's a sign of moral character, but it feels better. Yes. It feels better. It's more fulfilling. It's totally more fulfilling. And even when you receive a gift, you have an opportunity to give something in return. You ever had an experience where someone offers to do something for you and your higher self wants them to do it, but your cultural self feels that it needs to say, oh, no, 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 I couldn't possibly accept. Mm. You've just, you've done two, you, you, when you do that and if you stick with that, no, 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 I couldn't possibly accept. If it's a genuine gift, I'm not talking about someone trying to impose something on sure. you or coerce something. You have interrupted that person's experience of the blessing of giving you something. Yes. And you have forfeited your experience of giving them the pleasure of giving you the thing in the first place. Absolutely. And so that's why you should say, wow, that's really generous. Thank you so much. They experience the pleasure of giving. You experience the pleasure of giving them the space in which you receive. Mm, yes. This is all over the place. It's right? wonderful. Because, because it's, it's energizing and animating to me. And I, and I want to really emphasize this is not about being better than anybody else. I think it's just a better way of telling a story. And it's a better way of, of living. And we have to kind of uh, evaluate our lives. And, and ask ourselves, where am I living the domination story? Yes. Where am I living the unhealthy revolution? Where am I living isolation 
or purification or accumulation or victimization? And can I defect from those stories into the reconciliation story? Mm. Because to, to defect from domination does not mean to abandon the idea of leadership. Right? Mm. Domination is a shadowy, tyrannical form of leadership. Yes. There's a golden version of leadership, and it's leadership through service. Mm. And revolution, abandoning revolution as a form of, of change does not mean that we no longer care about the oppressed. It's just that we extend our care for the people who we believe are doing the oppressing. And so, yeah, sure, we replace regimes, but we don't do it by dehumanizing the people who are leading those regimes or supporting mm. those regimes. Um, and we don't do it from a position of ideological purity. We do it from the question of what will work to serve yes. the common good. And we don't abandon victimization by pretending there, there's no wound. Yes. We grieve the wound and we heal the wound. And we, and we interrupt the situation to prevent there being more wounding. Mm. We realize that uh, revenge as Anne Lamott says, is like drinking poison and hoping that your enemy gets sick. Yes. So we're wrapping up here, but one last question, and hopefully it will it just, if for listeners who want to do something to improve their personal world and their community at large, what is one thing, one tiny starting point that you would recommend? that they could do today. Can I say two? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> One thing you can do on your own right now, wherever you are, unless you're driving, and when you're listening to this, in which case, next time you pull over, you can do it. Yeah. You can do it in the car. Sit still in a quiet place. Slow down your breathing. Or better still, just allow your breathing to slow down rather than forcing it. And as you breathe in, Allow an image or a thought that reminds you of gratitude, compassion, or love to arise in your mind. It can be a picture, it can be a memory, it can be a sentence. It can even be fictional, it can be a scene from your favorite movie or your favorite book. Or it can be the face of someone you love, alive or dead. Maybe someone you haven't even met, who you just admire. As you breathe in, allow that image or that thought to emerge in your mind and each time you inhale let that image or thought get clearer for me when I do this exercise I, I often find myself in my mind's eye looking at a drive-in movie theater screen and the image is being projected on the screen and the sky around the screen is getting darker but the image on the screen is getting brighter every time I inhale mm. and then when you really have it when you really have that clarity of image or thought or just even a feeling of gratitude, compassion, or love. Exhale loudly with real strength. Measure the strength, not out of control. Just let the breath go out and send the image of the thought by your mind to every cell of your body. Mm. Breathe in again, and when you exhale, send the image of thought to every cell of your body. And then do it one more time. And then the next time, send it to someone you know who needs it. Mm. And then the next time, send it to the world. Yes. You can do this exercise in two minutes. There's neuroscience behind this. If you want to look it up, uh, Google heart math. Uh, and if you, if you want to be reminded of it, it's called the heart math quick coherence technique that's mm. a it's sort of a broad brush strokes version of what i've just said and the other piece is if you want to connect with a circle like the one i was talking about we do this thing called the porch magazine and it's a conversation that tries to bring to light some of these better stories uh if you go to the porch magazine.com you can read what we've got there and one of the segments on the website is uh, I think it's called Porch Circles and you can click on that and it will give you information about how to start one of these circles for yourself. We don't control them and you don't have to be you know, loyal to us in any way but we, we, we want to grow more of these circles uh, of between three and eight people who are enhancing each other's lives, mm. learning and sharing a better story, making the world a better place. Mm. That's wonderful. 
Well, Gareth Higgins, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your time with us. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for what you do. If people want to find you, find your work, get in touch with you, where can they do that? GarethHiggins.net or ThePorchMagazine.com. Okay, wonderful. Well, that's our show for this week. The music is by The Jelly Rocks. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. If you enjoy my work and want to support it or get in touch with me, find me at sbradfordlong.com. You can contact me there and you can read my dozens of articles on faith and doubt and LGBT issues. I also want to direct you to theologycorner.net. It is the podcast network that has graciously brought me on as a contributor. Lots of very smart, heady theological people talking about lots of smart things. They brought on a, a fabulous, heretical, foul-mouthed queen like me, so they can't be too bad. Definitely go check them out. They're a great group of people. That is theologycorner.net. I will see you next week. <laughs>